It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Jonas Bordo, CEO and co-founder of Dwellsy, the free residential rental marketplace that makes it easy to find, hard to find rentals. Prior to co-founding Dwellsy, Jonas was a senior executive at several leading real estate firms, including Essex Property Trust and Bentel Greenoak, and was also with the Boston Consulting Group after graduating with his MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Jonas has had the good fortune to build, rebuild, and lead amazing teams across the multifamily and commercial real estate operational and strategic spectrum, manage large P&Ls, and deliver big profit increases. He is husband to Rosalind and father to Bailey and her two younger twin siblings, Zach and Thea. Jonas is an avid hiker, a lifelong learner, and a maker of things sometimes out of wood. Jonas Bordo, welcome into the corner office. Brand, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, wow. This is a real treat for me. And with full disclosure to our audience, Jonas and I have known each other for about five years, I think, going mm-hmm. on six. Yep. Uh, you were a client and one of my best, I might say, uh, in a couple of years there while you were at Essex. And uh, I am also an investor in Wellesley. So for those of you that uh, will notice my peak of interest <laughs> with regards to Jonas and his background, <laughs> I want to make sure you all aware of that and just so excited to hear your story. You know, I know a little bit about you. You, but as we get between the lines, uh, we'll learn a lot more and, you know, very excited to uh, have this journey together with you. But let's start with kind of what everyone's on, on top of our minds. We're uh, mid-August, actually going into the third week of August. This might not be released until sometime in the early fall, but the pandemic has been all around us. How, how are you doing? How's your family? And, and how's the team at Dwellsley during these interesting times? You know, Brent, I, I am just so fortunate uh, in this time and just reminded of, of the privilege that I experience every day uh, because we are we are doing pretty well. Uh, it's a awesome. little stir crazy. Yeah, uh, yep. but fortunate to be helming a business. <laughs> three kids at home, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, three small kids at home, but I do feel like they're in kind of that sweet spot where we've yeah, got a, yeah. we've got six year olds and an eight year old, and right. uh, they're happy to be home and uh, not um, so needy at this point that we right. need to be right. on them at all times. Uh, yeah, so awesome. they're holding up pretty well. And your team, how's everybody doing at work? Team is doing really well. It's uh, you know a little scattered. It's yep. uh, it's a challenge to build a company culture when everybody is remote all the time. Uh, So we're wrestling with that on a day-to-day basis. 
And you were kind of remote beforehand, right? You had a couple of people that were working out of the office or were you all pretty much coming into the office every day prior to the pandemic? We were, most of us were coming together one yeah. day a okay. week, but working right. remotely most of the right. time. Right. Uh, so, but it's not a big you know, shift in that area. Yeah. It's yeah. not a big shift. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of interesting thoughts on uh, talking about working remotely. We should talk about it at some point. Absolutely. Oh goodness. Yes. It's been very interesting times. Well, let's start with you and your early years. I know that you're a dual citizen, Canadian and mm-hmm. U.S., uh, but uh, I think grew up in Canada. Tell us a little bit about your early life, parents, siblings, and you know, what that was like. Yeah. Uh, born and raised in Toronto, mm-hmm. a fabulous city to grow up in, uh, even more fabulous city today than when I grew up there. Right. Um, you know, it seemed like a bit of a backwater at a certain point to me and I couldn't wait to get out of there and then had the chance to my career took me back there later on in life and was just right. amazed right. at what a, a dynamic global city it had become. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, fortunate to grow up there with a couple of siblings and, um, my parents, uh, had split early on, but, okay. um, you know, both very connected to me and, and, uh, very fortunate to be raised in a, in a loving family. Both uh, stayed nearby. Were, were you kind of going between homes growing up or did you stay with one over the other? Yeah, it was a little bit crazy. Half a week with each, each okay. week. Right. So, right. uh, yeah, shuttling back and forth constantly. Right, uh, right. Which and nice you had to be good, wanted, but brothers and sisters as well that were doing that as with you or? Uh, no, I was the only one doing that actually. Got it. And any other siblings that came along later or uh, pretty much grown up as, a, as an only child? Uh, actually, you know, a, a very interesting uh, combination of factors because I actually have five siblings, but oh my gosh. basically grew up as an only child. Wow. Uh, so my siblings range in age across the span of about 30 years. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, uh, I, my running joke is it's the nuclear family, uh, right. different kind of nuclear. <laughs> now, were you at the, at the, at the tail end of that uh, range or, uh, in the middle or at the top? I'm kind of the middle child, yeah, uh, upper yeah. middle, I guess right. you could say. Yeah, cool. And what did mom and dad do? Uh, so both entrepreneurs. Uh, oh, wow. My cool. my uh, mother. No big had surprise a, there. <laughs> yeah, my mother had a whole series of businesses, uh, everything from health food stores to consignment clothing shops. Wow. Wow. Um, actually, just sold her um, last business uh, a couple of months ago. And my father oh. uh, had a variety of different businesses over the years, uh, but primarily in the retirement home and nursing home oh, space. Okay. Got it. Got it. Hence your interest in real estate, which eventually led to a, a career there and, of course, continuing to be there. Exactly. Mom was Canadian. Dad was U.S. What, what uh, was the mix there? Both Canadian. Both Canadian. Yeah, okay. both Canadian. Um, so you brought yeah. on the U.S. citizenship later in life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. First cool. one to come down here and get citizenship. So Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Tell me about some of the early influencers, you know, in your life. Anybody that particularly inspired you? I mean, starting with mom and dad, anything that you recall from those days that you either observed or learned or, you know, focused? folks uh, uh, or teachers or coaches that you met along the way. Yeah. Uh, so fabulously lucky to have um, some great teachers who, mm. who really helped me and, and um, you know, some English teachers in particular who really uh, got me going with love of language and love of communication um, from both a, an academic perspective as well as a really pragmatic perspective, being able to use language in order to communicate effectively and uh, help share ideas. Um, so that was really important to me uh, early on. Um, also, I played a lot of uh, sports, uh, and so which that was sports, very essential. Which sports to my were your experience. most interest? Yeah, what, which, uh, which yeah, was primarily swimming. I was very, okay. very into swimming, oh, okay. yeah. um, and I found that to be a wonderful combination of of individual accomplishment as well as team accomplishment. Right. Uh, it was right. nice to have both sides of that in that sport. But I, I got very accustomed to you know being in the pool or or in the lake every day at five a.m. Wow. Uh, so it wow. gives you a good discipline. 
competitive? Did you compete through high school, junior high? Yeah, very competitive. Started in yeah. fifth grade and competed all oh. the way through the end of high school. Um, awesome. And got, you know, D3 recruited, if you will, for yeah. um, for uh, college, uh, but ended up playing a different sport in college. Okay, got it. What was that? Uh, squash. And squash. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Terrific. So were you a good student in secondary school? I reluctantly have to say I was not a great student. Uh, I, I did. I I always felt like I could have done more, but but felt like uh, I needed to keep the peace at home and maintain mm. a certain uh, grade point level in order to do that. But more was not necessary. So uh, put all that other energy into other things and not as much into school as I perhaps should have. Was it just because you kind of excelled at the things you liked and were kind of bored with the rest of the stuff or how did that kind of play out? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I, I uh, think it was a combination of a few different things. Yeah. One is I just had a lot of other interests right, uh, right. that, that took my mind. And, and two, I didn't see a lot of margin in being the very best student at that point. It <laughs> right, just didn't right. seem like the best time use Time versus time. reward, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So other than sports, you mentioned swimming and then eventually getting into squash. Were there other interests, you know, music, theater, debate, you know, what? how did you spend your time growing up? Yeah, a lot of different sports. Uh, so mm -hmm. swam, played a lot of tennis, um, did cross-country skiing, downhill skiing, nice. um, you know, variety of other things that, that caught my interest along the way. Um, dabbled in music, but never uh, got the passion there. Um, right. Always wanted to be a writer. Um, so I actually oh. spent a lot of time writing um, when I was younger. You're um, probably an avid reader as well. Usually those very avid yeah. reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, read yeah. a lot. And, what and kind of writing did you consider at that time? You know, a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've always been very interested in, in personalities and, and human beings. And, and I just, I feel like the, the characteristics of personality are so fascinating. Right. Uh, so I, I toyed with a lot of that when I was in high school. Um, and there were also some genres that were specifically interesting to me. Yeah, uh, cool. always uh, liked mystery novels and sci-fi mm -hmm. novels as well. There's some aspect of of the world that are created in those kinds of environments yeah. that I find very creative. Yeah. We share that in common. I love that. Love that area. And uh, uh, with regards to you know entrepreneurial activities, you <laughs> mentioned both mom and dad were entrepreneurs. Growing up in Canada, of course, is a little bit different than growing up in the U.S. I don't know if you have the ubiquitous paper route or the <laughs> other types of things, but were were you involved in anything entrepreneurial growing up? Yeah, a number of different things. I, I yeah. had that paper route with a with a bit of a different okay. spin. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So I I spent all of my summers uh, on a lake north of Toronto, mm. uh, and I actually did a paper route by boat. Oh my uh, gosh, that's cool! Yeah. How awesome is that? Yeah. Uh, that's great. So for for many you know for many years, it was actually the uh, the highest earning job I'd ever had because uh, I, I built this <laughs> fabulous little business. Um, I actually, love had the it. experience of you know a guy who'd done it before, and and he was unwilling to sell me his route, so I ended up creating my own route. Oh my um, gosh! And carved out a um, you know effectively a, a good business. That was my start That's in business. That's great. How many how 12. many lake how many uh, uh, you know houses were on the lake? Uh, well, there was about 120 on my route. Wow! Wow! Um, it was probably four or five times as many cottages uh, in yeah. my area, but uh, you know just managed to to sell, 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 and uh, it was a very early lesson on sales. That's great. And yeah. A very Absolutely. early lesson on making sure people paid you. As I was well. going to say, did you have to go and literally collect as well? Was that part of the game back then? Yeah. I yeah. did. I did. Awesome. Did you have to get out of the boat to deliver it? Or were you able to literally, you know, get your arm strength up and, and make the porch from the lakeside? <laughs> I, I did not. Uh, okay. I, I would say my my aim got good enough that uh, 19 out of 20 times I could hit the dock without even stopping the boat completely. 
That's so, great. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. And and were you, you know, bound for college? Was that something that mom and dad expected? And did some of that money go aside to help that or or did that kind of come later? Yeah, to be honest, I it never even occurred to me not to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, right. so I was a uh, fait accompli from the beginning. And yeah. Um, and yeah, again, uh, I'm fortunate in so many different ways, uh, one of which is my parents were able to pay for college. So that was never an issue for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. We went to two great colleges, obviously Vassar for your undergrad mm-hmm. and then on to uh, Chicago Booth for your for your master's. What, what made you choose to come to the state? Was that when you first came to the U.S. then when you came down yeah. to Vassar or has you been yeah. uh, prior to that? Yeah, that was uh, that was when I first moved to the states, and, yeah. and it really, you know, the, the Canadian educational system is fabulous in its own way. It is. Yeah. Um, much it, bigger schools. People much don't bigger realize schools. that. Yeah. Fifty, sixty thousand, I think, University of Toronto, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, and yeah. you know, some of the others are high, but um, exactly. Yeah, Vassar's you know, a very different experience. Very, very different experience. Yeah, yeah a small school in Canada is fifteen thousand people. A big school is a hundred thousand. <laughs> right. right. Um, and one of the things, you know, ha- having some early self knowledge was uh, served me well. One of those things was I knew that if I was in a classroom with a thousand kids, I wasn't going to learn anything. Uh, I was going to go off and do other things. And so I needed to be in a place where um, it was a much more intimate experience. And so I started looking south uh, to the U.S. and um, and found Vassar. And what attracted you to Vassar? I mean, obviously you played squash. I'm sure that was mm-hmm. a, one of the yeah. one of the key things there. But um, you know, Vassar was, I believe, a women's only college for many years. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. did that change over? About 20, 30 years ago, I don't, I don't recall how long that's been uh, co-ed. Well, it's actually still all women's, but they let me in. No, I'm just <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, it, it went co-ed, I believe, in 68 or 69, oh, if I'm Gosh, not mistaken. So it's yeah, been, a, it's been 40s, a good long yeah, while. 40, 50 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, a number of things attracted me. One, they let me in, which, you know, was very appreciated. <laughs> uh, made a big difference Back in, in those my days. school selection. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I really uh, liked the intimacy of mm. the educational experience there and the way in which you could uh, really get to know your prof- your professors sure. uh, and and the uh, degree to which they focused on uh, what I would describe as core liberal arts skills. Um, yeah. critical One of thinking. the strongest liberal art colleges. Yeah, really. It's, yeah, it really is. You know, I'm a big yeah. fan of that style of education overall. And it served me particularly well uh, because of what I needed at that time. But, you know, the critical thinking characteristics, communication, uh, education, um, you know, some of those core skills that I, I still use today, every day, yeah, um, really fit me well. And you went and you got your degree, I think, in both political science and economics, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. What made yeah. you choose those fields? Uh, well, I was obsessed with politics coming in. Okay. And so that was... Uh, American politics or Canadian politics? Uh, actually, American politics. I, <laughs> okay. I, one, of my, one of my favorite classes in high school was an American history class that I took. Right. right. And because Clinton I just, was president back then, of, I think. Correct. 92, yeah. 93. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I just, uh, I thought the, you know, in contrast to Canada, where, you know, Canadian history is all about everybody agreeing at different points in life, uh, the U.S. had all of this fabulous conflict and, Mm. you know, interesting challenges along the way that it helped this nation form into what it is today. Mm. And and I was just fascinated by that. So American Mm. politics was actually my concentration and, and where I spent my initial um, years focused at Vassar, but then I, uh, at the end of sophomore year, took an, uh, an economics class right. and fell in love. It just, yeah. it, it explained so much about how the world worked to me. Right. Right. And I'd never had exposure to economics as a discipline before that. Uh, and one of the great things about uh, liberal arts colleges and Vassar in particular is that your major 
didn't necessarily need to be all of your classes. It was a proportion, mm. but not all. Right, um, right. So I was able to, um, you know, not just major in political science and economics, but also take classes in, I think, eight other departments in addition. So Yeah, awesome. And you had about four or five years of work before going back to get your MBA. Did you kind of mm -hmm. have that in mind when you graduated, that you would get your MBA at one point in time? Or did that opportunity come up as you got into the workforce and decided you need to make a pivot at some point? Yeah, I, I can't say that I had it in mind when I graduated from college, but mm -hmm. I went to work immediately after college at a small consulting firm um, where all of the senior people all had MBAs. And mm. that was very, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it just, it, it was something I didn't know about at that point. And it was right. something that um, caught my eye as um, an interesting next step and an opportunity to really take some time out from the workforce and, mm. uh, and explore um, opportunities uh, in a way that you you really don't get that many chances to do that in the course right, of a career. Right, awesome. Did you have leadership responsibilities early on? You know, start managing people in those first few jobs, or did that come later after your MBA? Uh, I did. I had I had some actually uh, got incredibly lucky to have a um, kind of amazing set of events happen. Uh, I was working for a company called Interbrand. It was my second job right. out of college. Yeah. And I uh, joined a previous boss from my first company who, when he started the second company, gave me a call and asked me to come join him. And I did. And that was in New York City. Right? <clears throat> that was so in New York not, City. Not too far yeah. from Vassar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, we had the entire leadership of the San Francisco office of Interbrand at that time all went together to go join a startup. This was during the first uh -huh. dot-com boom. Huh. And uh, they became the marketing department of that startup. And of course, that Interbrand San Francisco office, which was a fairly substantial operation for the for the company, it was probably thirty or forty people, um, was left without any leadership. My goodness! And wow. I put my hand up at all of age twenty three, I believe, <laughs> at that time, and was sent out to lead the San Francisco office in the Interesting. interim. Wow! wow. Uh, and that that was my first taste of leadership, and yeah. it was um, you had to rebuild, right? You had to go out <laughs> yeah. and hire people and, yeah. and put the people yeah. in place. Wow. Exactly, wow. and and hold on to you know my the the goal at that time that um, that my boss, the president of the Americas, uh, had set out for me was to try to only lose half the clients. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep the bar real low here. Exactly. If we only lose half the clients, <laughs> that will a be good a job. good day. Right? Oh goodness! Um, and you know, it, it was a, it was an incredible team out there. There was yeah. so much depth in the in 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 the team there, and we were re really able to do some remarkable things at a at a, a really interesting times. We came up with a couple of products that were very specifically mm. geared towards the uh, dot coms at the time. And we ended up actually growing the book by about 25% when I was Good there. Good for you. Good for uh, you. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you had, particularly on the people side, you know, given that your age and obviously, you know, you probably needed to bring in people with deeper experience, right? In terms yeah. of their background, et cetera. Yeah. Well, it, it was my first experience of, of what I've um, later mentored lots of folks with, um, you know, what I'd describe as non-positional leadership. You know, yeah. you're, you're the interim, you don't have official um, leadership position, you can't rely on that. And, and in my case, I was 5, 10, 15, in some cases, 20 years younger I can imagine. than anybody yeah, yeah. out there. Um, so uh, it was a real trial by fire to figure mm. out how to get this group all pointed in the same direction and not sure. just to go, you know, head for the exits and, and look for work. Right, uh, right. So that was, uh, that was absolutely a focus. Um, recruiting was less my focus. There were other people working on recruiting. I was really focused on the clients and the, the team that Got was it. in place yeah. there. Yeah. 
Great. Terrific. And then shortly after that, uh, I think you went on to, is it Sicola Martin? Is that the name mm -hmm. of the operation? Correct. And moved down to Texas for a while, yeah. or did you work yeah. out of the West Coast? No. You went... Yeah, moved down to Austin. Yeah. Um, you know, it seemed like a fascinating place to be and an interesting uh, job to do. And, and, uh, got the chance to work in a, a really uh, remarkable little agency that was mm. doing great work in the technology space. It was a, basically a B2B technology agency. Right. Had six or right. seven tremendous clients. Uh, was doing wonderfully creative work in a space that at the time was really not great. Um, yeah. So much yeah. of the work was just, here's a picture of the box that we're making you know, and two or three claims. And Sokola Martin was doing some really creative work and I got to be at the center of that really thinking through the the strategy and the messaging for our clients awesome uh, yeah. it was a great experience for a few yeah. years and then from there to uh to 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 booth right now exactly was there a pivotal point there that you decided you needed to go back was there a you know some something that you saw missing in your toolbox that you wanted to go have or was it just time you know i, I think the is a combination of, of factors one mm -hmm. uh this is 2002 Right. Um, so the world was exploding, was imploding, and <laughs> right or imploding, yeah, imploding. Perhaps was a yeah, better exactly. way to say it. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I was in good um, time to run for cover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that was that was absolutely part of my thinking. Uh, the yeah, company that yeah. I was with, unfortunately, went from about 160 employees down to about 25 at the time ouch. that I was there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, five six rounds of layoffs. It was just brutal. Oh, Felt like it brutal. might um, make sense to be somewhere else before right. my name made it on a list somewhere. Now, were, were you and um, Rosalind married at the time, or was we this still? You were no, not. We hadn't, so we hadn't met yet at that yeah, point. Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, so, you know, business school was was front and center yeah, um, right. in my mind. And actually, Good the week time. I left for business school, they eliminated my entire team. Um, so, my timing, <laughs> timing is everything. Timing yeah. is everything. Yeah. And what made you choose Booth? Obviously, great school, you know, terrific reputation. Yeah, what I was looking for in a business school. So, I, I, I had been in marketing for a few years at that point. And I'd really enjoyed my experience in marketing, found right. a lot of value from it, um, but wanted to complement that in a way. So I was mm. looking at schools like um, like MIT and Wharton and Booth, sure. um, where I would really get a much more quantitative experience, exposure mm. to um, finance, exposure to um, operations uh, in a way that um, I hadn't had experience before. Right, uh, right. So that was uh, one of the primary drivers, and drivers, I was just thrilled yeah. to be admitted to Booth and yeah. uh, have the chance to attend. And you joined BCG, the Boston Consulting Group. Great, mm -hmm. great mm -hmm. opportunity. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they recruited actively there, um, and you probably had many opportunities. What, what made you decide to go with them? Well, I joined them for the summer. I had a couple of different summer okay. internship um, yeah. options, and um, frankly, I, I wasn't looking to get into consulting. I had uh, I had not interviewed for a lot of consulting jobs. I'd okay. interviewed for a couple. Um, but had been looking more at operational roles uh, within uh, other businesses. And there were a lot right. of rotational programs at that point, and those looked really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And BCG was not one of those. Um, interesting. And uh, of the jobs I was offered, um, the BCG one seemed to be uh, really a, a chance to, to get an experience within a, a legendary brand and a legendary firm um, and it seemed like I was going to get exposure to things that I wouldn't get elsewhere where I'd be in more right. of a, uh, a more, you know, intimate kind of routine experience, if you will, yeah, um, as yeah. a summer intern. Uh, yeah. and it, it turned out to be that and more. Um, yeah, I awesome. spent, I spent my summer, uh, trying to, uh, turn around a factory in, uh, in Michigan, 
uh, with 3,000 employees, and I'm this lowly intern who's trying to figure out whether this factory <laughs> should continue. Wow. Um, staggering amount of yeah. responsibility at that point. And I'm, I'm Dozens really of employees to there too, I'm sure, and the impact of that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Did you close it or open it? <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> we actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud to say that the, the team there was fabulous and they had yeah. a whole bunch of um, really amazing ideas that just hadn't been able to attract the mm. attention of the more senior folks in the manufacturing group. Um, and we were able to channel a bunch of those ideas, get them exposure, save awesome. a ton of money mm. um, and make that plant uh, operational uh, yeah. and highly cool. profitable. So, now you spent cool. a couple of years there and then pretty much since November of 606, mm -hmm. you've been in the real estate business, right? Yeah. So 14, yeah. going on 14 years. Did, were you exposed to that at BCG and, and therefore kind of set that, you know, strategy out or uh, was it kind of more hop, happenstance that you, uh, you know, went to EOP and then on to Essex where we met a few years later? Yeah, it was, uh, it was not something I was exposed to at, uh -huh. at BCG. Okay. Um, but it was something I was doing in my personal time. I had mm. uh, kind of caught the bug of, uh, individual investing and was taking, uh, every spare dollar I could save and, and put it in, putting it into, um, buying, you know, in Chicago, what's known as three flats, right. um, you right. know, small, uh, townhouse type. Exactly. Townhouse yeah. style, yeah. Yeah. um, apartments, um, and bought my first and then my second and was really yeah. enjoying that. And, and, um, was feeling like BCG was not the place where I wanted to spend my career. Right. Um, so I started looking at, is there, is there a way I can take this passion for real estate yeah. and make that my day job as well as what I'm doing on the weekends and evenings? Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you've certainly have a passion for it. In fact, I remember the very first time we met and you were giving me a little bit of background. I was a little bit chagrined because I didn't get the chance to place you. Mm. You actually knocked on the door at Essex, if I recall <laughs> the story correctly. Yeah. Uh, our, our mutual friend and your former boss, John Burkhardt, had actually told me about that position a few months ago. So I was mm -hmm. waiting, I was waiting, and all of a sudden I got the call. Hey, Brad, I want you to come in and meet our new group vice president. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it sounds like in real estate, you've really taken that entrepreneurial bet. We'll talk about Dwellsy in a moment, your current mm -hmm. uh, startup. But, uh, you know, did you kind of uh, weave your way through the various companies? Because you've worked for some great ones, obviously, Bentail Kennedy for a few years, and then mm -hmm. you came out uh, to San Francisco with them. Is that correct? Because you were originally in Chicago. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, ended up um, at, at Equity Office, and it's actually kind of a funny story. We uh, on my fourth day of work, um, the, the Blackstone acquisition of, uh, of, of EOP was announced. Oh, uh, so it was a very short-lived <laughs> experience. I was tremendously right. excited about the job and uh, the team there and, and everything. And it was, uh, it was a very short-lived experience. Right. Um, right. So that uh, deal closed a few months later and ended up uh, moving on. And I actually started a, a management consulting practice, kind of combining my BCG experience with wanting to be in the real yeah. estate space. And I'd, I'd right. met some folks who um, had some deal flow in the management consulting area for real estate companies. And sure. it seemed like a, a nice idea to combine my ability to execute that work with their deal flow. Awesome. And spent the next five years building a management consultancy, which was uh, yeah. a great um, opportunity to really understand how uh, real estate businesses overall, mm. but in particular real estate uh, investment management businesses worked. What uh, is it about the industry that attracts you? You'd mentioned your passion for it, and I and I know that mm -hmm. knowing you personally. Yeah. But uh, is it the um, you know the the housing of other people? Is it the ebb and flow? Is it the return? Is it the complexities of it? What what is it that really attracts you to the industry? You know, I, I'd say a couple of different things. One is the uh, the the physicality of it and how mm. tangible 
It mm, is that yeah. it's not hard some, assets. Exactly. It's not some <laughs> complex financial product that, you know, you need a PhD in order to understand. Yeah. Um, you know, you can and actually, everybody needs one. Yeah. Right? You, you know, we need a roof over your heads. And, and right, I think that's right. what you're talking about there, Brent, is, is the second thing is how yeah. relevant it is to all of our lives. Right, uh, right. And how uh, central real estate is, um, you know, whether you're, you know, living, working, shopping, um, sleeping, eating, whatever you're doing, you're doing it in real estate um, yeah. or you're transiting mm. between uh, sure. real estate points. And so that uh, importance to all of our lives has always made it really interesting. And then I think the the last thing is just that it's it's always been an industry um, that is very old fashioned in a lot mm. of ways. Uh, mm. So it's just felt like a, um, a, a space where there's a lot of opportunity to make things work better. And that's one of the yeah. fundamental yeah. things that I like doing is making things work better. Would you say that there's been kind of a lack of innovation in the industry as well? And that absolutely. you saw opportunities? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, that brings us to Dwellsley. Obviously, you've been, gosh, uh, almost two years now uh, with that startup. I can't believe how fast that time's gone by. Mm -hmm. uh, you got things going with your wife, Rosalind, and I think you've got a team of about 10 now, 12. How many po people? Uh, yeah, about Rosalind? a dozen folks. Yep. About a dozen folks. Great. Tell us a little bit about the concept. And, you know, let's start with kind of what led you to the startup and then, you know, the mission and vision of what you're trying to achieve there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the central idea came from a couple of experiences I had in my most recent role at Essex, uh, I would go out and talk to our, uh, our residents uh, regularly. And what right. I would hear from them is that the search for a place was just brutal, uh, yeah. that yeah. it had gotten dramatically worse. And then on the other side of that, you know, one of my responsibilities at Essex was to rent 30,000 apartments a year. And, uh, you know, working with all of the partners in the space, I could see it, it was very obvious that that industry was just not serving the property managers in that space well right, at all. Right, uh, prices right. were going through the roof. The quality of, of leads was going way down. Um, very problematic for the landlords. And, and, and for those of listeners that know Essex Property Trust is what we're talking about. Largest read on the West Coast, I think that's still true. 60,000 yeah. units between San Diego and Seattle. Yep. Been publicly traded for 30 odd years, very successful. And uh, about 250 communities, right? I think up yep. and down the coast, yep. is that about right? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Great, great, great company. Still a client of ours as well, full mm -hmm. disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> so so you saw some gaps, you saw some holes. Yeah, I saw a very obvious um, mm. hole there that, that um, you know, to be honest, it, it kind of took being in that spot, in that nexus of all of that right. uh, to see. And then, you know, the other piece of it was that the there was just no data available to manage the business. Isn't that um, interesting? You know, things that yeah. I would have um, counted on in any other space just didn't exist. Like you, mm. you, you can't really tell what the pricing should be. You can't really tell how many units are in a building. You can't really tell um, any of the kind of core characteristics of these very expensive assets that you think yeah. would be well documented. They just right. aren't. And uh, I tried to go out to bid to buy some of that data from people I thought might have it and nobody would right. sell it to me. Uh, either because they didn't have it or they weren't willing to sell it. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Probably a know, combination of both, right? Yeah, yeah. it seemed like an yeah. opportunity to solve a huge market problem uh, yeah. on, on multiple fronts. Yeah, yeah. So so what were the first steps? I mean, obviously, uh, you've got a family, you've got small <laughs> children. I believe Rosalind was doing consulting work at the mm -hmm. time, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, um, yeah. Big risk, big, big, you know, uh, kind of bet on, on making <laughs> yeah. things happen. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that conclusion and, you know, sold, sold the wife and kids on, you know, going down that road. 
You know, it's funny. Uh, so Rosalind and I have always uh, been entrepreneurial, entrepreneurially oriented. Right. Um, and it's always been something we've wanted to do. She started a couple of companies over the years. I've always wanted to do the same. Um, so we always knew this was in our DNA and something mm. we were going to do at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was kind of part of the landscape, an important part of the landscape. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it was a realization for me. I actually got a call from uh, a search consultant right after I left Essex um, about a job that I, I should have been really excited about. It would have been, in many ways, a great And that step wasn't up. me, by the way. <laughs> it was not you. It was not you. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it was funny because in uh, substantiating how great a job was, um, mm. this guy's telling me that, you know, you'd be a board observer and you'd be on the senior management committee. And he lists off six or seven different committees that mm. I'd be on. And at that moment, I just, all I could think of was, oh you. my <laughs> goodness, I'm going to be in corporate all those politics. committee meetings you've been for, in. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be in committee meetings for the next 10 years. Oh, and, goodness. And that, that made me realize Isn't that, that I needed yeah. some time away yeah. uh, from huh. that corporate world and that I needed to embrace a more entrepreneurial uh, approach for my next step. And awesome. Um, you know, the idea for Dwellsy was already there. I'd been raging about the need for, to solve this problem to anybody who would listen for a while. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed like a, a no brainer to go after it. Was there anything about the uncertainty of it and the, um, you know, success, uh, or perhaps lack of it that, you know, gave you some fear or some trepidation before making that decision? You know, it's always, it's always nerve wracking, um, right. whenever you're making a change of any kind. Um, and I'd say, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be later in my career. I've had a number of, um, interesting roles in, um, you know, the kind of middle market companies that you profile so well on this podcast. And, uh, that's given me a certain amount of freedom. And I think, mm. you know, one of my friends from business school made a comment to me and she's an entrepreneur, um, as well. And, and she made a comment to me as I was thinking about starting it that said, well, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? You go back and get another high paying job. That's right. Yeah. You know? exactly. And exactly. she's exactly right. And I yeah, think that yeah. that one comment really freed me from worrying about that risk. I, I had an entrepreneur the other day, his podcast can't be released, so I can't mention it yet, but he was talking about that same thing. He'd yeah. been very successful in technology ventures. And most entrepreneurs, people look at them, they think they're very risk-oriented, but, but most smart entrepreneurs have a plan B. Yeah. You know, even with Richard Branson, you know, when he got into the airlines business was hugely risky. He had yeah. an EBITDA from, you know, Virgin Music that was insane, you know, well into the eight yep. figures. Yep. And so he knew, you know, he would spend so much against this and marketing so much against that. But if it all failed, he still had that EBITDA coming right. in every year. Right. And right. Uh, do, do you have that? Do you have your plan B or is it, you know, can always go back to the corporate workforce? Yeah. You know, I think the the, the plan B, look, look, we are we are all in on Dwellsy. Um, it, right. is, it is our you know, all of our time. It's Rosalind's full-time job too, right? It's Rosalind's I mean, full-time yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, so our, yeah. our family is all in on this. Um, so it would, it would not be good if that did not work out. Um, however, <laughs> the reality is I'm, uh, you know, I've had great experience along the way and sure. I think this experience only makes me more employable. So right, while, um, this is the right thing for, for me and for our family right now, um, if it were, God forbid not to work out the way I hope it will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have that plan B, which is to to go get a job. And I'm sure I'd find an, an interesting yeah. job with great people. Yeah. And uh, I'd certainly be able to help you with that. So. 
<laughs> Not that I intend to, but, you know, by all means. Well, you know, building a, a 12-member startup team is a very different approach than, than building out, you know, a, yeah. a corporate team. And, you know, yeah. you and I did that together. We yep. brought in a number of people to your team. You know, how has your leadership style evolved? You know, if you think about, you know, kind of how you've built that out now versus what you did in the corporate environment, what does it look like? How does it look different? You know, I think there, uh, you know, one of the things that's very freeing in this environment is the ability to take some risk mm. on fabulous people who don't have what I would describe as kind of like corporate standard resume. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I've had this experience multiple times where, um, you know, people around me have been hired or I've hired people from my team who, you know, they've done the right thing. They've done the job in progressive, um, you know, roles for 20 years and you hire them to do the job and then you're disappointed when they can't do this other yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we've been able to take some chances on some people who uh, are really exceptional, who mm. you, you just see that kernel of capability um, and are able to give them that shot, even though their resume wouldn't necessarily suggest that um, they know exactly what to do on day one. Sure. And sure. I think there's a lot more upside potential and, and I've seen a lot more upside potential from those folks. So that's, that's one of the things that I've yeah. Yeah. Um, had fun with in this environment versus yeah. in corporate environments previously. How do you get at that, Jonas, and, you know, making bets on those people you invest in and hire? You know, I mean, it's uh, yeah. one of the biggest things that, that so many CEOs tell me is that, you know, the resume and the background, and maybe I have an hour, maybe we meet a couple of times, but, you know, how do you kind of get at that character and that integrity? What what, what are your approaches in truly trying to understand, you know, what motivates and drives the people that you uh, are looking to have join your team? Yeah. You know, uh, Brent, I wish I had some magic on this. <laughs> um, and, and, you you know, I, I certainly have not been anywhere close to a, a perfect hirer over the years. I have made my share of mistakes as well. You're pretty good. In my book, you're Thank pretty you. good. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. The, um, you know, but it is, it is as much art and science. Yeah. It? You know, it, key to have great partners. I, you know, I think one of the things that has been um, really valuable to me is to have trusted hiring partners. And I, I, mm. I mean, you know, working with somebody like you who's great, Brent, but, but also internal people who yeah. um, you really know and judge their uh, ability to attract and retain great people and are able to leverage them as well for um, for complementary perspectives to your own. Right. Um, so that's always helpful um, and, and key to listen to them and not yeah. just yeah. make your own decisions and, you know, regardless of what you hear from them. Um, but th the main thing for me is I always try to get into a work situation as best I can with mm. people in interviews. Mm. So, you know, everybody's got, you know, oh, this is the question I asked, that's the question I asked. For me, it's much more about how do we recreate a work situation? So mm. I always try to set up a, um, a case you know, study. how would you handle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's kind, right. of, it's kind of getting back to my consulting days a little bit, you know, setting up a bit of a case study. Like, here's a situation, here's something that yeah. we're actually yeah. really wrestling with. Right. Um, let's spend two or three hours and, and talk about it. I remember, yeah. you know, one candidate that you and I worked with, I think I spent four hours with her in a restaurant mm. one day going through a particular problem. It was just so impressed right. with her thinking and capability. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's the kind of interview experience that I right. have always found that's served me well. And you, I've always looked right. for those people who um, want to solve problems in an effective and elegant way for their own sake. Right. Um, right. And, and if they have that internal drive, then they can kind of do anything. 
Yeah, uh, kind of doing the right thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, folks that really want to do the right thing and yeah. want to want to make a difference. Exactly. You, you know, a startup is so unique in so many ways, Jonas, and you know this from living it. But building a company culture, you know, is is really you know what sustains a company over time. And you work for some great companies, you know, Essex, obviously BCG, mm-hmm. your early days in Interbrand. You know, wh- what is it that you would say is kind of unique or or perhaps unusual that you're trying to build at Dwellsley that differentiates you not just to your um, your clients and your customers, but but also to your staff. You know what's what's unique in my experience is we have a, a true mission orientation at Dwellsey. Mm. Um, you know the companies I've worked for before. I, I think we've gone through an era the last twenty years where it's been a hundred percent shareholder um, return focus, and that mm. has um, always been the, the the you know the kind of sole focus, and 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 that's important uh, to sure. us here at Dwellsey. But you know one of the one of the most inspiring experiences I've had of, of uh, working in a company and being a leader in a company was at uh, what is now Bentall Green Oak. At the time, mm-hmm. it was Bentall Kennedy, yeah. um, where there was a real uh, passion around the fiduciary aspects of the business mm. and a real sense of understanding who our clients were and what we needed to do in order to do an exceptional job wow. for them. And there was an understanding that in the end, we were actually going to make a, make a better experience for the employees, a better outcome for our clients, and a better outcome for our investors mm. um, by bringing that mission orientation. And a lot of the other companies I work for, well, I've been fortunate to work for wonderful companies, um, have have not had that um, backbone to them. And that's yeah. one of the things that I've tried yeah. to build in from the beginning at, at Dwellsey, which is there's 110 million renters in this country. Mm. And the status quo is really terrible for them. <laughs> it's and a low bar. <laughs> it's you know it's it's a horribly like the status yeah. quo yeah. is is you know it's appalling in many ways and we're going to make the world a lot better for 110 million renters for 10 mm. million landlords um you know they're going to have a much better experience selecting and occupying their home which is a sacred concept. Yeah. And yeah. you know that mission orientation uh, is is critical to the culture we're building at Dwellsey, and, and I, mm. I have worked to um, and, and hope everybody feels that very cleanly and very clearly uh, that that's at the center of what we're trying to do. And we accomplish that goal, we're going to change the world. Yeah. Awesome. You know, I was so impressed. Um, I know you've recently started your own podcast and I listened to the first episode out and you had oh, a very, you. very astute uh, renter, I think part of your community. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I was so impressed with her ability to be able to just zero in on the types of things that were really important um, in, you know, making that apartment choice and, yeah. you know, the, the struggles that she went through and, you know, the kind of challenges they have. Are, are, are you, you know, kind of um, finding that your your customer base, you know, has, has very unique needs that just haven't been met and and are you kind of structuring your service in such a way that meets those differently than everyone else is that kind of part of your mission yeah that's exactly right you know the um you know for for most of your listeners they'll probably uh, think of craigslist as the primary place to go for for rentals which (laughs) um, we can all talk about how experience how bad that experience is Um, and you know there's no point uh, going into that in more detail, right, but right. what's fascinating, but it is, is the most, you know, available source. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it used to be, yeah. they have very few, yeah. um, actually legit listings anymore. Most is of the right? time there is, is fraudulent. Unfortunately, right. the fraudsters have figured out that it's a pretty free and open place for them to Goodness. operate. So they're yeah. most of what's there now, unfortunately, yeah. but, yeah. 
Um, but on the uh, on the other, you know, pay to play sites, um, the landlord is their client, which is fine. Um, right. You know right. that that that's perfectly reasonable strategy for them to have. But it means that if you're a renter um, and you go to their site. Uh, what you will see is not what you're looking for. You will mm. see in order the people who paid the most to show you the listings. Right, right, um, right. And then the people who paid the next most, and then the people who paid the next most. And they'll go so far as to um, you know, provide these small, sketchy-looking listings um, <laughs> for the people who pay the least on those mm. sites. And uh, it's just a terrible experience. They're not actually helping the renter. They have very few renter services. The renter is not their client. The right, renter is right. the product that they are offering right. to landlords. And, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for us to make a, a very uh, different, build a very different business and a, make a very different product that serves that renter in an exceptional way and puts them at the center of the experience that we're trying to build. So you're really kind of creating this true organic search, you know, free ecosystem, I think is the way you've described it, uh, opportunity, right? They can go to your site and be able to truly understand what's available in the area in which they're looking. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. exactly right. I think we're the only platform that offers true organic search. There are no paid listings. That's very intentional. Yeah. That will always yeah. be the case um, because we just don't want to junk up the search experience. You know, it's, awesome. you think about Google a few years ago. Um, it was a very clean experience. Right. Uh, it was very easy to find what you're looking for, and I think they've they've pushed it so far the other direction now. Oh, you have to go to page two or three. Uh, to yeah, get you got to go below the natural. fold to find yeah. any organic yeah. results, and it, right. it's right. become difficult. And they've opened themselves up to competition from um, yeah. other players like DuckDuckGo and and others who are uh, taking a pure approach. Right. Um, right. They have such a dominant market position. I don't know if anybody else will be able to challenge, but. Um, you know, I think there's a real opportunity since, um, you know, the other sites right now serve a very small slice of the population, really only the top 20% of renters and uh, the socioeconomics, uh, socioeconomically speaking, right. uh, yeah. and, uh, it's all ads. <laughs> yeah. Nothing yeah. Else. That's right. No, it's true. Um, that's so. true. That's true. But your, your revenue model then is going to be much more than providing ancillary and additional services then to your community. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Very yeah. much, uh. Um, a freemium type business right. model where we right, have right. Um, come in, know. get free organic search, and then mm -hmm. hey, if you like us, stick around. We've got some other things that we can help you out with in your exactly in your apartment exactly. hunting and moving yep. in experience. Yep. Yeah, yeah, awesome, yeah. awesome. Well, Jonas, you've been very, very generous with your time. We, we have a couple last questions though, and you know, one obviously relating to COVID, and uh, you know, it looks like this is going to be something we're in for a while. You're in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm back mm -hmm. out of a place in Connecticut, and you know, we, we've got uh, spikes going on everywhere, and of course, everybody's talking about how bad the fall is going to be. It, what does the world look like, particularly as it relates to people that are, you know, apartment hunting that are using your service in kind of a post-COVID world? Are, are you making changes to your model? Do you see things that are, you know, kind of play out a little differently in the future for, for your staff and for your customers? Or, or is it kind of business as usual from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I question this every day, um, <laughs> but I think we are one of those rare companies where what COVID has done is really reinforce the need for the service that we are already providing. Mm, um, mm. You know, there well, particularly are to today be, when you can't go and get yeah, an appointment, right, and see something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's that much harder to go search for a place. The online tools are that much more important. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And the the very service that we provide has become that much more essential to people. Right. So right. Um, I, I question that every day because I, I yeah. cannot 
imagine that there is not more, um, you know, both challenge and opportunity that comes from this for our sure. business because so many sure. businesses have been forced to to change how they operate as a result right. of it. Right. Um, but best I can tell, that seems to be the case. There'll be continued tweaking, I'm sure, as we go. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Of course, yeah. well, well, last, you know, what, what, uh, you know, we've got a lot of our audience that are, you know, folks that are in 10, 15 years younger than you, 20, 30 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give them if they're listening in? You know, it's someone that maybe has their mm -hmm. eyes in the corner office or, or perhaps wants to be an entrepreneur someday like you've been. Yeah, I, I, I'd give a couple of pieces of advice. You know, the, mm. the more cliched, but I think uh, critical piece of advice that I got early on from a mentor who's still a mentor to me today uh, is to take the biggest challenge mm. uh, in front of you. And if you have a choice between roles and opportunities, take the one that scares you more. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, very much cliche, but I think very much true. Um, you know, another another point is is you have to know yourself and mm. invest that time to understand what you're good at and yeah. put yourself in situations where that can come out and mm -hmm. where you can really allow that to thrive. Well, Jonas Bordo, co-founder and CEO at Dwellsley, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Brent, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 